Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Good of the Game. I'm JD, the host of the podcast, and we have a very unique guest today I'm really excited to speak to today. Um, his career is also unique in that he had stops as a player, assistant coach, and head coach in the college ranks at University of Hawaii and in the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons, often recognized as the champion of the run and shoot offense, which he learned while playing for Mouse Davis at Portland State. Our guest today is Coach June Jones. Coach, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Coach, I wanted to, uh, the theme for this year with the podcast is really talking about uh, relationships and building uh, trust and respect with regard to, uh, you know, teams, players, and coaches, and uh, not necessarily meaning to get into culture too much, but uh, I, I first wanted to get at something that um, I've not heard in any of the interviews, and I watched a lot of your games when you were at Hawaii, because they came on at a good time for me, <laughs> um, but having experienced it as a player at Portland State, when you began coaching, what drew you to become a champion of the run and shoot? You know, was it tactics or fun or being wide open? What really drew you to continue to run that offense? Well, I think uh, being uh, tied into the Atlanta Falcon offense, which was uh, uh, basically run, you know, driven like all the NFL was uh, for a lot of years. I, I just uh, knew and compared it uh, what I had done at Portland State and, uh, uh, you know, what what we had done as a player in Atlanta that I knew that moving the football the way Mouse did it was, was 10 times what, what we were doing. And to be quite honest, we were the number one offense, I want to say, in the NFL in, in 1980, I think it was. And um, we incorporated a lot of the things that uh, I – really brought to the table to my coaches on converting routes and doing things that Mouse was doing. And we added them to what we were doing in Atlanta. And uh, Steve Barkowski, I think, was the top passer that, that year, about three or four years in a row. And uh, a lot of it was off of the conversions that, that we installed. But it was a funner way to play. The players uh, got involved. Uh, all the things that you mentioned are the reasons that I – that I continue to uh, to uh, produce it and and teach it. That's awesome. Did you um, after you know a short stint uh, in after SMU and a short stint in uh, being a high school OC in 2016 and then getting back into the CFL uh, for a little while when you got a chance to coach in the XFL? What excited you the most about returning to the pro game, albeit in more of a developmental setting with that level of athlete? Well, <clears throat> when I left uh, uh, SNU, I came back home here to Hawaii, and uh, I met uh, uh, the Tongo Bailoa family, and uh, I helped to coach two of his junior year. Uh, in fact, I talked to the father last night. Uh, he called me uh, about Tua's uh, uh, job at Miami, but I took his younger brother, Taulia, who's the quarterback at Maryland right now, and he was only 15 years old, and he broke all two of his passing records, uh, which was kind of kind of fun for for him. And then I had a, got a call from uh, a friend up in uh, uh, Hamilton. They had lost, uh, I think, six straight games, and so I went up there just to kind of overlook what they were doing offensively to see if I could help them. 
and then they lost the next two games and fired the coach and asked me to be coach. I think this statistic probably is the most incredible thing. Uh, when they asked me to take the job, I didn't even know the players' names. I, I, I didn't know any of the language that they were using for the offense, terminology. And so when I took over the team and they were 0-8, they were dead last in every offensive category in the CFL, every one of them. And so I coached the next 10 games and uh, with the same players, with only a quarterback change, Jeremiah Mazzoli uh, took over. Uh, we were number one in every offensive category. So, you know, I didn't even know that until I left and somebody told me all that. And I just did confirmation again of what you can do when the kids buy in with the offense that we do. The XFL was awesome. Uh, I enjoyed it immensely. I think we would have won. We, we were undefeated when the COVID closed us up. But I think we would have won it all had we continued to play. Yeah, I noticed that uh, I think uh, P.J. Walker, who played for you and uh, Seamill as O.C. for the for the Roughnecks, um, ultimately signed and uh, got a start and I think filled in when Bridgewater got hurt. He looked like he uh, I, I don't I didn't get to see how he played, but at least he, he did use that as a stepping platform into the NFL. Yeah, he played really well, actually. It happened to be on here in Hawaii, so I got to watch it. And uh, he was, I want to say, 24 of 34, something like that, 300, close to 300 yards and a couple touchdowns. He threw a couple picks, which he wishes that he, he hadn't thrown. But he got on film, and, and that is going to make a big difference that he has NFL starter uh, on his bio now. That's awesome. Hey, Coach, just out of curiosity, have you seen, and you touched on this a minute ago, I want to go this direction, start talking about relationships, but have you by any chance seen the post-game interview with Coach Tom Allen, the head coach in Indiana, after they beat Wisconsin the other day? Um, I did not see it, um, but I did watch that game, but for some reason I didn't, uh, didn't see the press conference. Well, I, I, I'm not going to try and play it over the phone. Um, I've watched it several times. It, the bottom line is his, co his players kept running by and interrupting the interview, just ecstatic, not only obviously having won the game, but just I, the, the reporter that was interviewing him said, coach, I've not seen love like this in a long time. I mean, the players were just ecstatic. And, and, and I guess the reason I bring that up is because I wanted to ask you the question, you know, what do you think as, I mean, having coached at every level in so many different leagues that you have, what do you think are the most important elements in establishing great working relationships, you know, as a coach at any level? Obviously, a little bit different as a head coach because there's the natural authority that goes with the position. But as far as um, establishing those relationships, what, what do you think are the most important elements from, from your standpoint as a coach to build that kind of culture? Well, I, I, I will say this, that Tom Allen uh, didn't have better players than the Wisconsin football team. But his kids, like you say, that intangible, that chemistry that, that makes average teams uh, great and the, the talent, talented teams that don't have that chemistry brings them down a level. And uh, all the great teams, if you, if you watch, in fact, I'll, I'll share with you a, another thought. You have to build that co culture. 
And the culture comes from trust in each other, from telling truth, being honest all the time with them. Uh, and, you know, I tell a lot of stories during the, during training camp and during the season uh, that, that, that emphasize what you just described that Tom was happening with Tom Allen. I'll give you another one. I was a big basketball fan and always, always rooted for uh, San Antonio because I knew that uh, the coach down there has, has uh, set out a bunch of guys, Steve Kerr being one of them, uh, and other great coaches that have won. And he does it with, uh, with the same thing that you're talking about, Tom Allen. I remember when they won the last time the championship, the uh, MVP uh, uh, of, the, of the series was named. And it was, uh, the, I can't remember the player's name now, but he's, he went to Toronto and they won up there. And he, now he's in San Diego, at, or the Clippers, I think, L.A. But when he, they announced that the sixth man on that team was named the MVP of the series, you'd have thought uh, every one of them had won it. They were so excited and so together. And that chemistry that they had uh, when they won that NBA championship is what you see after every Major League Baseball championship, NBA championship, NFL championship. It's the intangible chemistry in your locker room that takes you to that level. Do you believe that, uh, I mean, obviously a coach can set the conditions for that, but do you believe that culture uh, is as much a two-way street between coach and players as it is from player to player on, with your senior leaders on any team? I think it's player to player. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't have the players uh, leading their own team, that's what I always tell them. Uh, you know, I tell all my teams this all the time. This is not my, my team. This is your team. If you want to win, if you want to be the best you can be, here's what you have to do. And I directly tell them what they have to do. And once they buy in and realize that, you see things happening in football games that they are doing that are, um, that are extraordinary. I mean, they, it, just, it just happens. And uh, that culture is created by the head coach, obviously. But the players have to buy in and eventually take ownership of the team. Absolutely, and and I've uh, I was fortunate to play on at least one team like that when I was younger, um, and I, I think that uh, I think the the elements being there uh, kind of just they don't just appear magically, but certainly for the players that are in those leadership positions, um, you can kind of sense that that kind of level of culture is, is established or is being established. What do you think, and you touched on this a minute ago, how important in that process do you think it is for a coach, whether it be a head coach or uh, you know, a position coach within a team, um, to be able to be uh, vulnerable as it were, that's kind of a scary word for a lot of us, um, you know, and, and just being able to admit, hey, I made a mistake or taking advice from a player personally, you know, I mean, obviously, I never played above the college level, so I can't relate on a pro level. But um, I mean, I think a lot of people see the, you know, the old hardcore, more dictatorial type coaches, um, it, you know, in, in the old films, whether it be, you know, George Hallis or Tom Landry or, or uh, Vince Lombardi. But all of those guys had their own unique qualities 
that they brought, that they cared for the players. Do you think that vulnerability necessarily has to be there or do the players need to know that the coach is approachable in order to have that kind of relationship? Well, I think the players have to know that the coach is approachable for sure. Uh, there's a lot of different ways of winning. You just uh, mentioned some of them uh, via those coaches that you mentioned. <clears throat> I was always of the mind after playing for Mouse. Mouse did it so different the way he handled the team, the players, uh, that that I knew that's what I how I wanted to do it, and so that's what I what I did. And I think because I did it back in you know the the middle '80s when I got into coaching after playing that the reason I had success was because of what you described uh, between player and coach. I mean, ha a lot of the things that, that – we were the number one offense at the Oilers, the number one offense in Atlanta. Uh, and I remember so many times that I asked players while we're watching film, you know, uh, can you guys read when they do this? And can you, we make this adjustment off of uh, some of the reads that we had? And a lot of the things that I still do to this day came from those players suggesting we do it this way. And I think once, uh, once you listen, you don't, you know, a lot of coaches won't change what they're doing, but I was willing to do that. And the players bought in uh, year after year. And I think that that's very, you know, very significant. You know, flipping the other side of that coin, how important is it, especially in the pro level, how important is it for those players, especially the great players, to be genuinely coachable in your eyes, being will, willing to, to buy in and take that, you know, constructive criticism, knowing that you're trying to help them improve? Well, you know, each you can't coach them all the same. Uh, teaching uh, Deion Sanders and Andre Risen when I was in Atlanta, for example, uh, Drew Hill uh, in, in – uh, Houston had some great years for for us. I mean, you can't coach them all the same. You you have to, as a coach, you get paid to coach the guys that have talent but are not buying in or don't want to do it the way you're doing. That's what you get paid for, the big dollar. And I will say this, uh, and I remember, I'll never forget this. I remember uh, I was head coach of the Falcons, and, and uh, Andre Risen was coming into his uh, – free agent uh, season, and we're doing one-on-ones with uh, uh, Belichick, who was head coach at Cleveland, and they had the two top corners in the in the league at that time, and Andre Risen put on a show in one-on-ones, and I can remember looking at uh, Belichick and say, he says, my gosh, he says, I, I, how do you cover that guy? And I said, well, you'll have a chance to coach him next year because we're not going to pay him the money that he's going to demand. I know the Falcons aren't going to pay him, and so sure enough, he, he signed Andre Risen. Now, Andre, for me, caught over 100 balls every year, okay? And he was still the same uh, guy, very difficult uh, on the field to coach. But I got, I got what I wanted out of him, and we won. Well, Belichick signed him to the largest contract in the history of free agency, and one year later, he, uh, Belichick got fired from Cleveland because Andre couldn't really do it. And, uh, you know, it's just – like I said, you get paid to coach those kind of guys. That uh, receiver right now that's at Tampa that's had all the trouble. Um, the, the, what's his last uh, Brown? Antonio, uh, Antonio Brown. Yeah. Antonio. You get paid to coach the Antonio Browns and get them to buy into the team team concept. 
you know, uh, you know, that's what that's why uh, head coaches are very interesting to follow to see who can coach those type players. That's interesting. That brings up a great, uh, a great question in my mind. And so when looking back on, you know, your time as a player um, in any of the three schools you played for or during your time in the NFL, what do you think the uh, most significant differences are in coaching athletes of the era that you played versus the athletes that you're encountering now? Well, there's a whole, it's a whole different deal, but yet everything has to be addressed. The social media, the talk radio, uh, you have to address that tenfold more times now than you did back when you had, you know, the Atlanta Journal Constitution and the, uh, and the star, whatever other newspaper covering you. You had two, two local newspaper guys and you still had to control how you presented, uh, uh, what you presented to them, what the players said. And now it's, you, you, I mean, it's 10, you, you got so many other uh, chefs in the kitchen with, with all the sports talk and all the, the uh, uh, social media, you know, things going on that you have to rein all that in. And it's all got to be team success before personal success. And if you don't have that, if they don't buy into that, then you're not going to be as good as you can be. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I don't know that uh, uh, I, 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 I tend to see the challenges that pop up um, so much related to as much to social media and the, the advent of just screens in general and kids spending so much time doing that. And also the, uh, the big push uh, at the coaching and parent level starting probably before high school now of kids specializing. And by the time they get into high school or, or for those that are good enough to play in college, um, it, it has developed into a system now where, you know, it's kind of the, the good keep getting better. And those um, that don't fit into the system or don't want to try and just want to have fun end up dropping out. In the United States, statistically, about 70% of kids quit playing youth sports by the age of 13, which is in my mind is a travesty because so many kids, you know, I tell people all the time, um, the, the foundation of what I learned, you know, going into the army uh, for, as far as leadership, teamwork, selfless service, sacrifice, things like that. I learned playing high school and college football. And um, that brings up a, a point just especially, I can't think of anybody better to, to answer this question with the extensive experience that you enjoyed at the college level, uh, what, and then, and then even more so for that, that year that you were uh, uh, back down at the high school when you spoke of working with Talia Tagovailoa, um, what do you think about this new NIL, the name, image, and likeness, um, the, the, I, for lack of a better word, movement started in California and now is being looked at by almost every state in the union where these players theoretically can build a brand and start to be allowed to make money off their name, image, and likeness. What, what are your impressions of that as a, as a movement? Well, I would be worried about it uh, if I was coaching in college right now or even in high school, because that is what I'm talking about, that, that, that we has to come before me. And that branding is all me related. It's not, it's not brand. 
uh, us as a group. And you're not going to win if you have a bunch of me guys on your team. It's not going to not going to work. So first of all, I would have a team rule that that there is no branding. I don't care if it is legal. I don't care if you can do it on our team. If you want to do it, get out of here right now because we ain't going to we're not going to stand for it. And I've done that on some other <clears throat> uh, social media uh, platforms, too. So when I when I get uh, around the team. They know what's expected from the get-go, and uh, if they don't want to, if they don't want to be a part of the team, then leave now. Uh, don't, 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 don't let me have to to let you go. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. I understand, and and while I certainly don't, um, I don't fault players for wanting to be compensated above and beyond, you know, the scholarship piece. I just think it gets really divisive and has the, has, that's my biggest worry is if you think the transfer portal is a big issue now, I can just see it being even worse in the future because guys, you know, get upset and say, fine, I'll go somewhere else. And, and to build that continuity and that culture we talked about uh, is going to be even more difficult as we go on. Coach, I want to be respectful, be respectful of your time. And I I do have one other question. That's a little bit, um, it's not really controversial. controversial as much as it, it, it it's been an issue for a long time certainly in the NFL um, and we're starting to see some changes now and, I, and I'm uh, you know based on everything that this country has gone through but with regard to in the past the limited or apparent lack of opportunity for minority coaches particularly in the NFL to gain status and become head coaches um, do you think that we're starting, you know, having been where you've been as a head coach at all levels, do you think we're starting to see some positive progress in that regard? So some of the guys that certainly you know of more than, more of them than I do, but I know quite a few who have been up to and including either an offensive or defensive coordinator but have never been a head coach are going to get a chance. Um, I said, we, you know, you're, we're going to fight this battle all the time, I believe. Um, I, I tried to, to uh, put an impact onto uh, uh, my staff when, when, when I was uh, in the National Football League. I hired the first black trainer in the NFL. I had uh, a black equipment uh, guy in the NFL. I had uh, uh, all my staff uh, were equally uh, divided from, from Caucasian to, to uh, African-American. And I, I believe that unless you get people uh, like, uh, uh, let me get a good example, um, Mike Tomlin, for example, um, unless you get people to take the lead and, and do like what Mike is doing uh, as a professional, the, the, the more opportunities will present themselves. Uh, to, to other owners and coaches, but the owners and the general managers are the guys that pick the, uh, the coaches. They're the ones that make those decisions. So getting them uh, to change and to turn, uh, turn it around is what has to happen. I think there's enough coaches like myself, like uh, uh, a lot of the guys in the, in, in the national football league now uh, definitely are conscious of, 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 supplying or surrounding uh, themselves with uh, minority coaches and 
And I think that some of the steps that the league has taken as far as interviewing process is certainly going to uh, have an impact, and, and, it, and it needs to have an impact. Yeah, I agree. And, and obviously, there are a ton of guys out there. And for me, it's all about, you know, hire the best guy for the job. And oftentimes, I think that for whatever reason, the deck was just stacked against some of those guys that we know of that probably uh, should have gotten opportunities. Last question, Coach. I uh, saw the news announcement. It may have been a tweet or uh, I don't know if it was on Twitter or, or just in the news, you know, that, that you had been asked about the continuance of the XFL and you'd be interested if you were offered. Um, what, based on your experience before and having lived through the, uh, the shutdown, uh, what kind of hope do you hold for the future of the league and uh, not necessarily you know, trying to predict anything, but based on the product you guys put on the field before, do you think there's a pretty good shot at this thing taking off if we can work through the COVID piece? Yes, I, I certainly do. I believe in that that the league will move on. Now, they, we, they've still got to get through a bunch of uh, still legalities of the bankruptcy and a couple other things, but I believe the intent is to uh, keep it going and uh, they got fortunately a little time till 2022 because they're not going to play this uh, February like they did they're going to play a year from February so they have time to get all the COVID I think behind them do make all the right decisions and do it and, and like I said in that interview if uh, it all happens and I do get an opportunity they ask me I would love to go back because I think had COVID not happened I think we would have would have had a real, real strong finish with good TV ratings. Yeah, I do too. The games that I saw were uh, were very impressive. And uh, all in all, I felt like the league was a huge success. Um, but, you know, things happen, so we'll have to wait and see. Well, Coach June Jones, yeah. I really appreciate you taking time to uh, to sit with us uh, and, and, and just chat a little bit. I, I certainly uh, – not only respect the breadth and depth of your experience, but uh, it's great on these calls, even though it's not hard hitting current football talk. Uh, a lot of times in my mind, uh, being able to pick brains of guys like yourself that have walked the path that you have is even more valuable for some of the younger coaches uh, and certainly some of the players that, you know, will hear the podcast to listen to. So thank you very much for taking the time from the beautiful state of Hawaii to, to sit down and chat with us today. All right. Aloha to everybody, and thanks for the call. All right, Coach. Take care, and God bless.